0: Where in the world is Alan Smithy? He was born in 1968, reportedly in Hollywood. His first screen credit is for a film of that same year, the Burt Reynolds drama western Fade In. One year later, Smithy would receive notably positive reviews for his work on Death of a Gunfighter. Over the next three decades, his presence in the film industry grew, His directorial work was sporadic but long-lived. Over the course of about 30 years, Smithy is credited as director for over 20 films, including The Birds 2, Land's End, National Lampoon's Senior Trip, and Ghost Fever. And he wasn't just involved in second-rate cinema. David Lynch's Dune, Michael Mann's Heat, and Martin Brest's Meet Joe Black have all credited Smithy as having an integral role in their production. So he must be pretty loaded, right? Wrong. Alan Smithy never saw a cent. And then all of a sudden, around the turn of the millennium, Alan Smithy goes missing from Hollywood, from the world of cinema, never to be seen or heard from again. By most standards, a man with over 20 films to his name has made it, right? How can someone like that just disappear? This is the story of Alan Smithy To understand Alan Smithy you first have to take a look at a little known director called Robert Totten Totten was a bit of a Jack-of-all-trades. During his long career, he dabbled in directing, writing, and acting. But he was primarily a television director, and aside from a couple of episodes of the David Carradine series Kung Fu, he was mostly known for his work on the Western TV show... Guns. Between 1966 and 1971... Totten directed a whopping 27 episodes of Gunsmoke. And then in the late 1960s, Totten landed the role of director on the small Western production of a film called Death of a Gunslinger. But the production was a troubled one. After a year of working, clashes between Totten and the star of the film, Richard Widmark, escalated so badly that Totten left the project. It's not so unusual for something like this to happen. Richard Donner was replaced by Richard Lester on Superman 2. Anthony Mann was replaced by Stanley Kubrick on Spartacus. The Wizard of Oz started out with Norman Tower at the helm before Richard Thorpe took over. Then Thorpe was fired and George Cougar held the fort until Victor Fleming arrived. was the original director on Gone with the Wind, but quit three weeks after filming. The studio rushed in Victor Fleming, hot off the set of The Wizard of Oz. The last to go, we'll see the first
1: three go before her. <laughs> and her mangy little dog, too. How about a little fire, Scarecrow? Oh, oh, no, no, no.
0: After months of filming, Fleming, fairly reasonably, had to take some time off due to exhaustion and was briefly replaced by Sam Wood. It's important to remember that even after working on a film for a long time, a director can be replaced, so when Totten decided to jump ship after a year of hard work and feuding with Richard Widmark, it wasn't unprecedented. Back to the death of the gunslinger, with Totten out, Don Siegel came on board. This is pre-Dirty Harry Siegel, but post-Invasion of the Body Snatchers Siegel. But when the film was finished, Siegel refused to take credit for his work, since he'd only directed the film for the last couple of weeks, insisting that Totten retain the sole credit for direction. But either Totten refused credit because the finished film wasn't what he'd envisioned, or Widmark protested the idea of Totten receiving credit because he felt like belligerence was the best cause of action. It's not entirely clear exactly what caused the producers to turn to the Directors Guild of America for a solution to this crediting dilemma, but that's exactly where they turned. Alan Smithy was the Guild's solution. Before 1968, DGA rules didn't permit directors to be credited under a pseudonym. The central reasoning behind this was that they didn't want producers to force pseudonyms upon directors, something that could inhibit directors from developing a resume. That all changed with Alan Smithy. Here's a quote from Julie Rigg from ABC's Arts Today.
1: Why this name? There are two versions of the story. One says that Alan Smithy, and that's usually spelled Alen, but sometimes Alan, is an anagram of the alias man. However, the more accepted version is that Smithy's creators wanted a name which denoted anonymity, but which no one else had. If it was going to be Smith, then it would be Smith with an E. Then a second E was added, just in
0: case. And that's how Alan Smithy was born. Probably the only man in the history of cinema to have a directing credit under their belt in their first year of existence. But solving the Totten, Siegel, Widmark dilemma wasn't the only result of Smithy's inception. Critics praised the film and its new director. The New York Times commented the death of a gunslinger was
1: sharply directed by Alan Smithy, who has an adroit facility for scanning faces and extracting sharp background detail.
0: Roger Ebert wrote,
1: Director Alan Smithy, a name I'm not familiar with, allows his story to unfold naturally.
0: It was the first step in Smithy's journey to becoming the most well-known nobody in Hollywood. Since 1969, Smithy has directed more than 50 films Including such monuments as Bloodsucking Pharaohs in Pittsburgh, Shrimp on a Barbie, Duck in the Muck, and the particularly catchy Appointment with Fear. But Smithy's directorial output wasn't entirely dedicated to Z grade trash. Unlike Bloodsucking Pharaohs in Pittsburgh, some of Smithy's body of work still incites critical discussion. One such film is David Lynch's Dune. Dune is based on Frank Herbert's complex and enormously popular science fiction novel about a sand planet where water is more precious than gold and giant sandworms terrorise the landscape. A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191 The known universe is ruled by the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, my father. There's a wonderful documentary called Jodorowsky's Dune, which details an aborted production of the film.
1: 3,000 drawings. I shoot the picture, point of view, movement of the camera, dialogue.
0: Signing the spaceships, the clothes, the whole look of his world. The opened the mouth,
1: the spaceship came in the tongue. Uh.
0: His vision was so huge, so beyond what anybody else was doing at that time. Things that George Lucas wasn't even going to try in Star Wars. It's enormous. It was Lynch's first and final large production undertaking. The budget was somewhere around $40 which was huge in those days. The production also called for several dozen giant mechanical worms, which is nothing to be sniffed at. Lynch's first cut was oppressively long. The producers thought so too, so over the course of post-production, a number of versions of Dune were cut. The television edit, which reduced the rambling epic down to an almost unrecognisable state, was the one that Lynch just couldn't associate his name with. And so Alan Smithy was brought on board to take credit where Lynch could not. And this started a trend. Smith had a busy decade in the 90s. He was called in for airline and television recuts of heavyweight films such as Michael Mann's Heat and The Insider, as well as Martin Brest's Meet Joe Black. An unkind and not-so-uncommon sentiment suggests that Brest might have been better to call Smithy in on the theatrical version as well. But it's not so easy to pawn the blame off onto Alan. The Director's Guild even has a process for allowing pseudonyms. It moderates each pseudonym request individually. Then it negotiates with the production company behind the film, which can often result in the director losing any royalties or income from that film. Not that the royalties or income would be going to Smithy. But it can be important for Hollywood studios to save on rewarding work where they can. There are times that potential work for Smithy doesn't get approved by the Guild. There's the notoriously bitter production of American History X. Director Tony Kay publicly and infamously objected to the influence that the star of the film, Edward Norton, had over the production and the studio. During post-production, Kay spent over $100,000 placing ads in the Los Angeles press denouncing Norton. He then invited a monk, a rabbi and a priest along to mediate a potentially heated meeting between himself and a studio executive. Fed up with the whole thing, Kay finally threw his hands in the air and requested that Smithy come on board to bear the load of directorial credit. But Kay's involvement in and disdain of the American History X production was already too public. Smithy was denied the gig. Any attempt on Kay's part to distance himself was pointless, and so the guild denied his request. The man who had once called himself the greatest English director since Hitchcock was refused an Alan Smithy credit. But the carnival was never meant to last. Paradoxically, Smithy's success ultimately engendered his downfall. In 1997, a film was released called An Alan Smithy Film, Burn Hollywood Burn. It starred Eric Idle as a director who makes a film so bad he wants a pseudonym attached to it. Only to find out that the name Hollywood uses in such cases is his own name. An Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn, was universally panned on release and currently holds an 8% rating on review-aggregate website Rotten Tomatoes. Roger Ebert, the critic who at once so enthusiastically praised Smithy's directorial work on Death of a Gunslinger, said of Burn Hollywood Burn,
1: a spectacularly bad film, incompetent, unfunny, ill-conceived, badly executed, lamely written and acted by people who looked
0: trapped in the headlights. But the cat was out of the bag and one of the conditions of receiving an Alan Smithy credit was that the director who was awarded, so to speak, that credit, was not allowed to talk about the film. This has always been difficult to enforce. But now that Smithy's presence within the Hollywood community was gaining public awareness, it was more tricky than ever. In the late 90s, a gathering of film scholars at the University of Pennsylvania began a study group entirely devoted to Alan Smithy. There was even a book about Smithy with a foreword by none other than film critic Andrew Sarris, who we talked about on the previous episode of this podcast. Fame had blown Smithy's cover. And finally, the Directors Guild of America decided to force Smithy into retirement. But not before Kiefer Sutherland directed a bad film called Woman Wanted and laid the blame on Alan Smithy. It was Smithy's final Hollywood credit. But the ghost of Smithy may never be erased from the entertainment industry. A few months after Woman Wanted, a film called Supernova was released. The director, Thomas Lee, shared many of the withdrawn characteristics that defined Smithy. Shunned from a cinematic, directorial career, Smithy has subsequently found work in screenwriting, in music video direction, in video game production. He dabbled in comic book writing, penning Daredevil issues from 338 to 342. He worked as the science advisor in the 2012 movie, Decay, as well as art director on the first-person shooter video game, Marine Sharpshooter. He even dabbled in porn in the early 2000s. Smithy may have been cast out of Hollywood, but his work continues through the enthusiastic imaginations of professionals with a soft spot for appointment with fear. There have been pseudonyms since Smithy, like Thomas Lee the director of Supernova. Recently, David O. Russell disowned his film Accidental Love. The finished film was credited to Stephen Green. Needless to say, Green wouldn't have been too bothered by the negative critical reception. Here's a quote from a Vice article about Smithy by Beau Franklin.
1: Smithy and the studio influences that formed him will live on in the increasingly extravagant blockbusters we're seeing over the past decade as the crews remain loyal to the studios rather than the directors. While Alan Smithy will probably never win an Academy Award, the films attributed to him reveal what happens when an individual's vision gets crushed by the industry. He might not be a true auteur, but at least he's given us some
0: memorable and memorably trashy films. People love Alan Smithy. It's even been suggested by Professor Jeremy Braddock from Cornell University that elements of auteur theory, which we talked about in our last episode, could be applied to Smithy's body of work. The idea is that Smithy's career reveals the influence of the industry rather than the artist. It's the genius of the system and the notion that studios can be viewed as auteurs. That's probably stretching it, as anyone who happened to sit through blood-sucking pharaohs in Pittsburgh could attest to. But you've got to hand it to Smithy. He came from nowhere, and rose to one of the most artistically influential positions in one of the most glamorous industries in the world. He did it all without lifting a finger. And when... He was finally exiled from the industry that made him. His influence was so profound that Alan Smithy's popularity spread across every other industry. He's probably the most famous man that never was. John Robuck's Film School, or my film school, is brought to you by Real Good. Subscribe to this podcast using your favourite podcast app. For more film school, and much more, head to realgood.com.au. For this episode, we'd like to acknowledge our use of clips from Gunsmoke, The Wizard of Oz, David Lynch's Dune, and the trailer for John Oraski's Dune, as well as the music tracks Misty Mountain Rendezvous by Squire Tuck, and the original music for John Robux Film School by James Milson.
1: This was a Trixie Studio production. Find out more at Trixie.xyz.